Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am extremely, extremely excited today because the guest I have today is unlike any guest I've had since I've been doing this podcast, and I've done over 130 episodes, and I've never had anybody on that is in the lane of my guest, who is the iconic and legendary Shadow Stevens. And as I look across from this man, I have so many mixed feelings about being across from the first thing I'm saying to myself, really, is here I am, I'm in front of a microphone, talking to a guy who's been in front of a microphone since he was sperm. (laughs) (laughs) And I haven't really been in front of a microphone, and I don't really have the experience that he has. It's almost like I should be wearing clown shoes because I don't really belong in the category of this guy. But I'm here, and I'm honored that he decided to do this. It shocks me sometimes when people accept invitations. I'm just glad that he did. And we're going to have an incredible, incredible, inspirational podcast today, because his life story is really, really incredible. And before I start my cold open, I want to just say thank you so much for listening and being such a big part of this show. This year has been incredible, and the podcasts so far have been so strong, and the feedback is unbelievable, and I'm very grateful. So thanks for the support. Thanks for going to the website and the Amazon banner and clicking on it for the Jewish Boy College Fund. doesn't cost you anything. 
and you buy your Amazon stuff and it helps them. So thank you so much for that. And without further ado, as I am in the presence of Shadow Stevens for the first time in my life, I've never met him. I don't know him. And I'm sitting across from him and I have to share with you and him that when you're doing these podcasts, you want to do an incredible amount of research. And that's what I love to do. And full disclosure, I found out that Mr. Stevens was going to be available to do the podcast today. And probably maybe 12 to 18 hours ago, I found out that he could do it this week, which is a joy because I like to do things. You know, when I get excited about something, I want to do it. I just don't know what's going to happen that quickly. And so I was looking over all the information for him, like I always do for all my guests. But I realized I really don't have time to look at the videos that are out there on this guy and all the different things, and I'm perusing everything. And just something hits me, this one video. There's just thousands of videos on Shadow Stevens, thousands. It's crazy. And I'm just looking, and I think I randomly, I don't know how I did it. I either pressed something on Google or I did something on his site or maybe sent me something. And the box comes up, and I see him with three beautiful women. And he is the whitest guy out of these three beautiful (laughs) women. He looks like a line of cocaine on an album cover. (laughs) But these beautiful, beautiful women, one presumably has some kind of relationship with him. Because, again, I haven't done all the research, but she seems kind of close. And the other two girls are beautiful as well, younger than him. And so I click the play button. And after I watched this video, just something came over me very emotionally that blew me away. And... I can't tell you word for word what happened in the video, but suffice to say that was his wife and his two beautiful daughters. And they said that we have something very special that we're doing today. We're celebrating today. We celebrate every year. And this is the 30th year that we're celebrating. And thinking to myself, what are they celebrating? Because you're doing a lot of things, a lot of things are happening. And then I lock on. And his daughters say, we're celebrating 30 years of sobriety. And every year we celebrate that. And I just thought to myself, wow, this is one of those moments. All you do when you're a person out there in the world, when you are exposed to an artist like Shadow Stevens, You're only exposed to the work. So whether it's American Top 40 or whether he's been on Baywatch or whether he's been on Dave's World or whatever he's been on, you're exposed to those things and that's your inspiration, his work. When he's introducing Dream On by Aerosmith and how he waxes the poetry about how Steven Tyler met the other band members on Commonwealth Avenue where they played, you get the feeling that he paints the picture like Vin Scully of the Dodgers paints the picture as an announcer, but you don't know what the person's like. You don't get a sense of who he is as a person. 
So I watched this short video with him and his beautiful wife and the chemistry they had together and his two beautiful daughters and the love that they had for him and the respect that they had for him and the celebration that they had for him knowing that there was a point in his life, quite possibly when they were very young or before they were born, where this was a man who probably was you'd have to imagine was not in a sense of control in his life as he is now. And so what moved me was knowing that I was going to talk to a man that not only was willing to share that with his family, that beautiful moment to inspire other people to take the steps necessary to get to the next level and stop doing things that were going to be like walking around life with ankle weights and to celebrate it and to say you celebrate it every year and the family and everything and to share it with the world. It meant something to me because being in the comedy business, alcohol and drugs are not kind. They're like father time. Most Often, they go undefeated. And people like Greg Giraldo and Mitch Hedberg and Chris Farley, we lose these great artists because they're powerless over drugs or alcohol, and they can't figure out a way to take the steps to change their life and turn their life around. And that video showed me the picture. It's almost like that movie Sliding Doors, or if you can imagine, okay, what's my life going to be like if I continue this path? And what's my life going to be if I change my path? And this video, the one video out of all the thousands of videos that I click on, it was like... That movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it showed the world what life can be like if you take the right steps to gain control over whatever vices you have. And there's so many artists out there. And if there's some of you listening today, or even those of you in law firms, doctor's offices, you know who you are. And the person we're about to talk to and spend a lot of time with today is somebody who is going down the wrong path and he figured out a way to take back control of his life. And the evidence will show that this is one of the most successful people in the history of his field. And when you watch that video, the evidence will show that in life, in his personal life, there can't be a more successful feeling of love and family, as you could see in that video. So if I had anything to say or any lesson to say before we get off of this cold open, it's the fact that if you're out there and you're talented at what you do, but you're partying or you're drinking or you're doing drugs or you're having fun, it's great now, 
And you may think, well, you know, I'm successful doing this. I'm still a successful lawyer or I'm still a successful doctor. I'm still a successful comedian. I sell out shows. But there comes a point in time where if you don't take the steps to make things better, the evidence of all the people that have come crashing down are very, very great. And if you click on this video with Shadow Stevens, you'll see the evidence of what the other side looks like. So take the steps to take control. Focus on your craft. And I guarantee you that your life will be as wonderful and great and successful as Shadow Stevens. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, 
buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in. I will FaceTime you in. And it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Yes, pumped. Shadow Stevens with an E. Spider Harrison with a Y. <laughs> okay, so here I'm going to give him the proper introduction. It's long. The guy's had an unbelievable career, so please bear with me. From the age of seven, Shadow Stevens was an artist, and he proved it early on, started in radio as the world's youngest disc jockey at the age of 11. He's been creating art throughout his career, and he is an artist, writer, producer, actor, motivational speaker, announcer, and award-winning radio personality. Among other things, he's been the host of the most successful and widely syndicated radio show in the world, American Top 40, broadcast in 120 countries and to an estimated 1 billion listeners a week, and became one of the most recognized voices in the world along the way. In the past decade, he transitioned into late night world as the voice of the CBS television series Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson and is now the voice of Antenna TV Network. He's also going to be working on a new Craig Ferguson show and countless commercials for major corporations, television and radio promos and new media companies. As an actor, he starred in movies and numerous television shows like Baywatch, The Larry Sanders Show, and Beverly Hills 90210. He was the star of two network series for CBS, four years on the top 20 series Dave's World, Max Monroe Loose Cannon, and two different versions of Hollywood Squares. And he also created and produced the hilarious Blackout Television, improv comedy theater with an all-black cast, and brought the same team to television for the weekly show on the TV One network, a show described as The Daily Show meets Larry Sanders. He's also known for creating and branding programming and marketing for Mental Radio on Sirius XM Talk Radio and Radio Theater about the power of the mind, science, mystics, aliens, and humor. He also created rock radio station Cabo Wabo Radio, broadcast from the Cabo Wabo Cantina in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, for rock icon Sammy Hager. I will share with you, I've never said the word Cabo that much in my entire life. <laughs> he is the founder, chairman, and president of Rhythm Radio, the sound of the world in a good mood. A global music network that had programming on the radio with nationwide coverage in 30 countries and programming online in seven languages, as well as creating and starring in one of the most successful regional advertising campaigns in U.S. history. He's won Clio Awards, the Big Apple Award for Advertising, and the Billboard Magazine Radio Personality of the Year Award. Created and launched the most successful rock station in the country, the world-famous K-Rock FM in Los Angeles, 
and the most successful album-oriented rock station in the 70s and 80s for 10 years, the most financially successful rock station in the country, KMET-FM in Los Angeles. He also is a multimedia artist with a recent show at the Top Gallery on the West Coast, Gallery Michael on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, and he has written five, get that, five children's books with five-star reviews, including The Big Galoot, with quotes from Whoopi Goldberg, Henry Winkler, Gene Simmons, and the late Dick Clark. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor to introduce my guest today. I'm exhausted. Shadow Stevens <laughs> with an E. Uh, <laughs> Yow. It's a lot, isn't it? It is. When you hear uh, that, what do you think? need to lie down. Good Lord. Um, I think, thank God I, um, I'm resilient. I think my, my, um, the thing I was blessed with, because I, I didn't come into the world as the smartest guy, but I came in with a lot of enthusiasm. You'll go out as the smartest guy. You, I'll go out trying. That's about the best I can do. I, I uh, aspire to try things that I've never done and that, that, you know, I try to do something different and unusual and, and uh, I keep creating. I think it's vital for artists to stay creative and whatever the, whatever the um, field is. And I've, you know, I come, I've, I've done uh, classes in uh, the art of creativity and I, and I compare it to uh, an artist with a frame. And the frame are your, is your parameters. And the parameters give you the, the room that you have to work in. What are the parameters of a screenplay? What are the parameters of you know, a television show? What are the parameters of a novel? Or, or whatever it is that you're working on. It, they all have rules. They all have um, things that you have to, to abide by. And then what can you do within that framework? And I, I just ha I have a lot of interests. And thankfully, I still have a lot of enthusiasm to keep trying. I grew up in Fantasyland in Jamestown, North Dakota. That's Fantasyland? Let me tell you. My parents didn't drink, smoke, use drugs, curse, or fight in front of the kids. They owned clothing stores and toy stores, go-kart tracks. Fireworks stands on the 4th of July, lake homes, speedboats, water skiing. I'm the oldest of five kids. We all uh, would run a fireworks stand on the 4th of July. My dad had a strong work ethic, and I wasn't prepared for the real world. And I just, uh, I didn't really like drinking, but the time I tried weed was like a revelation. And that just opened the door for me. And then it was, you want to try some acid? Well, what's acid? Well, it's like we said, more intense, lasts longer. Yeah. I had a terrifying experience on acid in Boston, double parked on Beacon Hill when it came on. And I was sitting in the driver's seat as my friends went to get donuts. And it came on and went, Dunkin' Donuts? I don't remember. It was like so long. In fact, I didn't ever see the, the donut shop. <laughs> I was in the car freaking out, looking at my hands, wondering who I was. And my friends were skipping down the street in slow motion, laughing, <laughs> eating donuts. Get in the car. Get in the goddamn car. What is this? You know, and you would think that any rational, smart person would go, I am never doing that again. 
that's insane. But by the time I arrived in Los Angeles within the year, we did it every weekend, and I was smoking 30 joints a day. And then I saw Dr. Lax. Dr. Lax, because I had a lot of responsibilities. You see, I had a lot of things. I had a job of some consequence, and I had, a, I had sometimes you have to work through the night and through the you know, and stay in the studio and you got a lot of writing to do. And I have to share this one thing with you, so don't lose your place. There was a comedian who since passed away in Boston. His name was Bob Lazarus. You just reminded me of the best joke he used to have. He said, Bob Marley at the time of his death smoked a pound and a half of marijuana a day. At least we know he didn't die of glaucoma. (laughs) So keep going. I'm sorry. It's true. Well, you know, well, Dr. Lax would say, you know, I, I started seeing Dr. Lax and, and after a short time I would see him and I would go in and, and say, well, you know, Dr. Lax, things have been going really well. I, sometimes I have to stay through the night and sometimes I have to stay in the studio and a lot of writing and a lot of responsibilities and I have to be on the air and I have to write things for the other people and I have to write jingles and sometimes I got to get, a, you know, and things are going really well, but I'm having a little trouble sleeping. And he would go, well, you had uh, Quaaludes last week, uh, last month. How about two and all? They go, yes, it would take off the edge. Two and all would take off the edge. And then I'm having, I'm graduating from Dexedrine to Black Beauties to any kind of, you know, uh, methamphetamine. And, and that was all like cumulative. It would get to this, to this, to this. That's long before cocaine set in. And by the time cocaine set in, I just used it for work, you know. It's, um, it's, it's me and the guys, you know, I was doing the... Uh, Federated campaign. What does that mean? You just used cocaine for work. Well, that was the rationalization. It was, uh, you know, you would. I thought it was because you liked the smell. <laughs> I like the smell in both nostrils because you know you have to. Um, the um, we I, I would I would uh, build it into my budgets, uh, an ounce of cocaine, one minimum uh, per week because we would do these. We you know we did eleven hundred commercials in six years. And it was the same little team. It was like a Monty Python team. And uh, so there were six of us. And I would supply, you know, the amp. And I had, we had our own studios. I had my own studios, post-production studio, cameras, lighting, everything. We would just meet on Monday, brainstorm an idea. How about rabid frog bonanza days? Rabid frogs ate our warehouse. We're passing the savings along to you. That's great. You get the frogs, you know, so you set up the shoot. We'll meet on, uh, on Wednesday. We shoot on Wednesday, edit on Thursday, turn them in Friday, and then do the process again the next week. And then after a while, I started thinking they should really be getting their own. <laughs> and so I would hold it. Doesn't the quarterback by the offensive line, the extra day? Well, at the beginning, you know, but Jesus, what am I, dad? So <laughs> I, um, so I, I started to hold it back and hide it in the ceiling. And I lived in Malibu, in Malibu Canyon, in, in a very quiet place. And I went to the bathroom one night at midnight and stayed there for a couple of hours. And when I came out, I heard something at the outside the bedroom window, and it sounded like this. And I would look out through the window, and i go, I don't see anyone. But you can never be too careful, so I put sheets over the windows and the doors. Then I realized you can see silhouettes through sheets. So I put quilts over the sheets of the windows and the doors. And I put nails at one-inch intervals around the quilts because I knew you could see around the cracks around quilts. And I sat there with my 12-gauge and my 45 and my Beretta, and I was 50 pounds overweight, and I decided I had to go confront my destiny. So I stalked outside and waited beneath the bedroom window. 
And after about 10 minutes, I realized I had gone insane. But at that moment, I heard a rustle in the bush. So I jumped up screaming, now you die. And I ran through the bush with my 12 gauge and they got away. So I went back to the bathroom to celebrate and locked the door and put a knife through the frame into the door to make sure when no one would get in. And then had another hit and had another drink. And, and then I went into convulsions and my head would crack on the floor. Clunk, 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 clunk. And when I came to, I would think that was a good hit. I should probably take a breather. And this went on for a long time. I mean, many, many. And at what point in your career are you when this is happening? This is is at the the first half of the Federated campaign. This is long after after my first radio, after K-Rock and after KMET and and starting an advertising uh, career. We're going to uh, talk about all of those. Federated was huge. Just tell our audience about Federated. Federated was, um, I was given a chance, I was doing their radio campaigns, and I, and the president of the company said um, he was criticizing their producer of their television in front of me in a meeting on the big screen as he showed it over and over again. Say, I can't tell you how much I hate this. It's so badly done. It's sexist. If I could get it off the air right now, I would, but we're already committed. And he talked for him for two hours, played it over and over again. Finally, he said, don't you understand? I want something simple and funny that makes people remember the name Federated. Is that too much to ask? And I said, how about if I do a Dan Aykroyd basimatic pitch man, you know, a parody of a pitch man, talk real fast. And at the end, I say, Federated smashes prices. And I'll smash a television with a circus hammer. He goes... That might work. <laughs> so if it, if it works, can I, um, will you give me creative control? Because I never want to do the same thing twice because, you know, after a few months, people want to kill me. And he goes, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So business went up 500% the first weekend. And it became um, one of the most successful, maybe the most successful regional ad campaign in U.S. history. On the West Coast, you couldn't get away from them. And we did 1,100 commercials in six years. Now, in the middle of that. 1,100 for that. 11 for just for Federated. Got it. We did, we would turn out five to eight a week. One of the things that's the bane of a radio person's existence is the fact that there's two kinds of commercials that you do. There's the kinds that you do for the station that their sponsor is doing all the stuff on the station and you got to do the read. And they pay you an amount of money that is a fraction of what you would normally make if you produced a regular commercial. And If they pay you at all, if it isn't part of your overall deal. Well, the deals that I've negotiated, they're the ones where I've been able to get that in for a certain price. Not that it's a miraculous price. Sometimes it's only as much as $1,500 or $2,500 when, as you know, you do a national commercial, something goes great, even a regional commercial, and you can make hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And so for somebody like you who was so successful at it, a radio station, this is what's the horrible thing. If you're one of the guys <clears throat> on a station, there's, let's say, six DJs, and you're the most popular, every sponsor wants you to read them. Yeah. And you're like, man, I got to do all this extra work. I'm only getting this check a month, and these guys aren't doing anything. Well, they're not as popular as you. Yeah, I know, and then I'm doing the work. And so that's why now that you're doing your own commercials for the Federated, you got away from that. 
and you got to make some serious money on those things as well, 1,100 of them. Yeah, well, and it was, you know, it was an overall deal that, that was, I had the production as well. I made money on the production. I'm sure the overall deal didn't call for 1,100 commercials. No, but part of the, part of the idea, the whole concept of the campaign was too much is never enough. And no commercial ever ran longer than 10 days for six years. So we would do them and every week they came out and there would be a batch of new ones, like a new comedy series. And they were all different. So maybe there's six or eight different commercials that um, all were funny in a different way. And then they went away. Doesn't the guy financing it understand as he comes into a meeting with you and the team and they walk out and they're like, oh, this is going successfully, but what the fuck is wrong with Shadow? The president of the company was a guy named Keith Powell, one of the all-time great people who I'm sorry to say has Alzheimer's now and doesn't remember anyone, even his children. But he was a really great man, and he saw the genius of it. And he did know that something was going askew because the commercials were getting less and less focused. And, you know, I have copies of all everything. In fact, there's a, there's a couple of videos on YouTube. Uh, one is called Laugh Now, Think Later, which is a long one. And, and then there's a short version called Bludgeon Advertising. And both of them have this arc where you see there were some pretty inspired and very funny commercials at the beginning that got a little more and more diffused. And then there's that mark, and it says, and a week later he went into rehab. And then there's this change. And then you start seeing the change in the commercials, and it's night and day. I, I changed as a human being. I lost 50 pounds. You know, I took up martial arts. I started meditating. I started changing in incomprehensible ways. In the first year, I met my wife. And, um, and it was like all skyrocket. It was all too good to be true. Okay, so let's go back. You're banging your head against the bathroom floor. You got two guns in your hand. You're running through the bushes. You're bleeding from the mouth and the nose and the head. What's the moment that happens where, as they say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired? I had a studio at Sunset in Doheny. Um, it's a building that's now closed, but I had it for 10 years. And I was in the studio by myself trying to level out. I had written this poem and um, it was like a prayer. And I was praying every day, God help me, I don't know how to stop. And I was in the studio, um, and I had an overdose. And my friends found me at four in the morning and got afraid. And they called my sister, who called my parents in North Dakota, who didn't drink, smoke, use drugs, curse, fight in front of the kids. And they were alarmed. And they had this talk with me. And they said, uh, you know... You got issues to the counselor or something. And I went, um, you know, what I really think I need to do is just take a little time off because I've been really going, really working, working around the clock. And I think that maybe if I go to Hawaii and um, don't, you know, drink or use or, or, or anything, just get some rest, relaxation, get a little sunshine, and then go skydiving and then jump out of a plane at 14,000 feet and plunging toward the ground. The rush will be so great that I'll just voluntarily want to give up drugs. And my mother said, uh-huh, maybe you should uh, talk to Betty Ford. So I didn't have a better idea. And so I 
tried to get in Betty Ford and there was no room. And they said, come back in a couple of weeks. And I said, there's no two, a couple of weeks. Um, this is it. There is no two weeks. In your mind, did you think that you were going to die? I didn't know, but I knew that there was a window of willingness in which I was open to exploring the possibility that there might be something wrong with me, <laughs> that I wasn't having a good time, that life wasn't um, in control. And presumably there were at least one other or many other people who came to you and said, Shadow, I think you should get some help. What is it, honestly, that your dad said that other people didn't say that created the window? Um, I don't think it was so much exactly what was said. It was the, the love and the concern and the persistence in saying, you know, there must be someone you can talk to. There must be something that you can do that will give you the strength to change. And what I didn't, because I, at that time, I thought I was just a drug addict. And my problem was cocaine. And I didn't know how to use it socially, you know, because it was a socially acceptable drug at that time. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, or maybe you would tell me, Barry, you should never be embarrassed of this. I've never tried it. So Don't. pretend that there's people out in the audience like me that have never tried it before. What happens to you? It's generally seductive. Um, the beginning is a little lift. And the, it, but before that, I, because I told you about Dr. Lax, my first drug of choice was speed. I, I really liked speed. It made me feel like I could do anything. And all I really wanted to do was be enthused and inspired all the time. I didn't want to be um, ashamed, humiliated, uh, embarrassed about being from North Dakota. I wanted to fit in with the space age of go-go, 21st century New York and LA type guys that, were, that had opinions and knew a lot of stuff. And I wanted to be able to keep up with them. And that kind of worked for a period of time. And um, and then when Dr. Lax cut me off after a pesky, well, I had this panic attack in my studio under a brilliantly subtle combination of a wide variety of intoxicants. And um, there I was breathing into a paper bag and when you go, oh God, help me. And, and, and you think that either you're going to die or you're going to be in a mental hospital for the rest of your life. And there's no, nothing in between. Your brain stimulates and, and thinks of every possible thing that could go wrong, that is wrong, that has ever been wrong, and you're doomed. So I go to Dr. Lax, and he's horrified that I'd come see him at a time like this. And so he cut me off. So then I turned to crystal meth, because it seemed like a good idea. It was cheap, kept me going, get a lot done. So this went on for, for quite some time. And then I... Uh, managed to be in a position to be able to be around people that had um, Peruvian flake, you know, a, a sublime and highly intoxicating uh, cocaine. And it, uh, there's a little kind of buffer and a glow and enthusiasm and a, a, an enjoyment in talking and, 
and you could talk and you'd solve problems. And then there's the whole process of it, the, the ritual of it. And you get into the ritual and then, you know, and, and things go well and, and you go, that's great. And I accomplished this and that's great. And then it gets more great. And then you accomplish more things. And then there, you come to a time when it just doesn't work. And your brain goes, it'll be better if I just do a little more. And it doesn't matter if the things that are wrong are like, oh, your body crawling with a million invisible bugs. Your best idea is, I just need more. I'll be fine if I just do a little more. And I've got to keep going because I got these things I got to get, get done. And I can't quite think about them, but there's something outside the door. And I heard this noise and there's something. And then I, I thought people were trying to kill me. So I, you know, guns, you, know, you can never be too careful. So I had a short barrel, 12 gauge shotgun, double that buck. And uh, I'm ready. And I had a mercenary gun that would fit in your wallet for all those times when you're walking down the street and someone says, give me your wallet. I'm ready. I'm bad. <laughs> but the truth is that I was terrified all the time. And this word paranoia is, is a simple little word that sounds like something you get on your back that you use a little ointment for. But it's an all-encompassing terror and certainty that someone is trying to kill you and you're doomed and you need to be afraid. All right. So... Here's a little weird question for you. Here's some options. I want you to tell me what the answer is. And there's an answer for every single question. Okay. You meet a beautiful woman at a party. You say, you want to smoke a joint together. What happens after you smoke a joint? You meet a beautiful woman, same woman. Do cocaine together, same woman. You do meth together, same woman. You do acid together. Tell me what happens at the end of the night with that woman in each scenario <laughs> with you and I, alcohol being the other one. Well, I didn't have a lot of experiences like that. I got married very young to my childhood sweetheart and we had a son. So at 22 years old, I had a child and I was being responsible. This is when I went to Boston, when I officially became shadow. And that was my first, like, step into adulthood. And then uh, when I came out to California, I, I said, you know, I started K-Rock radio station and, and uh, signed it on and created the format and stuff like that. And then I went to KMET and made that a, a big sta uh, station and then went back to K-Rock and then left radio forever to pursue things. If I'm going to work that hard, I'm going to go for higher stakes, was I think the thinking. And I went into advertising. And, um, so let's pretend it's not you. Okay, then I have to make this up. Here's the problem. It could be wildly um, uh, exciting. It could be um, something, if it's, if it's uh, LSD, it could go on for hours and hours and hours. Um, That's before the blue pills. Yeah, well, yeah. And you, you can take things that, that will buffer the effect of the LSD experience, but um, there's, there is a period of time generally with LSD where you go in, it's kind of a reverie and, and you're seeing hallucinations and things and you just kind of have a spiritual experience or it can be. The problem is, is that it's unpredictable and it can be an unspeakable hell. The, the same universe um, on LSD that looks that you actually perceive the perfection 
of all existence. You see the order of the seasons and the spider webs and the spinning of galaxies and and you know everything is good. You look at the sand and you see that there are billions and trillions of little jewels and you go, ah, life is good. Or you look at it and it looks bleak and barren and terrifying that all of these things man has built look like little, little uh, toothpick structures in a very terrifying world. And all you can think of is, all I can see are the bugs. They're bugs and their bugs are crawling and they're crawling at me and around me and that's all there is and what am I here? And you go into a hell that goes on for about a hundred years. It seems like that when you're in that, you know, elevated state. So it's very dangerous because you can't control it. Generally, uh, cocaine at the beginning, like I said, is a, is a stimulant. And, but then it reaches a point where it breaks everything down. So there's sex doesn't work. Things don't, don't work. Then you need more. And then the more doesn't work. And then, and then you're all amped up. And then, well, I just got to take off the edge. So I need a drink or I need a downer or I need something. And uh, then it's like a, a chemical soup. You know, it's like trying to find the right balance of up, down, stimulated buffer that will make you, uh, you know, like we are now, calm. <laughs> and so you go to the clinic or the treatment center or the rehab center, and you're saying that you just met your wife. No, no. Uh, when I went into rehab, uh, I, I was married for the second time to someone I fought with every single day, screaming fights every day for five years. And like put your fist through a wall type fights. All I want to do is I want to be calm. I don't want another relationship. I broke up. Well, after rehab, I broke up with her. And, uh, and, and then I was happy being alone. You get sober and then you break up with the girl. Normally you get sober and you get the girl back. No, this was, uh, I realized that um, she was a trigger point for me and that, it, that I would never stay sober if we were together and it wasn't working. It was clearly that it wasn't working. We didn't get along. And, um, and so, but in rehab, it, it was, my roommate and I were, were called the hideous twins. We were um, voted least likely to succeed because we had a lot of opinions. We were very enthusiastic and loud because we were the elite of the mentally ill. We were drug addicts. And they, all they were talking about, well, they were talking about alcohol. And clearly alcohol wasn't a problem for us. <laughs> and, uh, and steps. And whatever that steps. What the hell? Steps. What, what does that have to do with anything? I want to learn how to, how to not use cocaine, you know, obsessively. And then I remembered about a week in that I was, oh, I was drinking a quart of Canadian Club a day and tequila and Quivassier and wine and anything anybody put in front of me ever. And every day. In fact, I tried to quit cocaine once, and my solution was to drink a magnum of champagne every day. This is not a good idea. But the revelation was, they said, oh, you don't do anything. Oh. Oh. Oh, that seems more doable. <laughs> you know? Oh, you don't do... Because if you take something that diminishes your capacity in some way that makes you open to wanting to do something else, or... I see. I see. And so, uh, and, and this counselor met with my roommate and I after two weeks and he said, um, he said, you know, 
Um, you guys have a lot of answers. You might consider listening. This is the only program that has ever worked for anyone. And it's worked for millions of people, but you got to want it and you better know what you want. You better know why it works and have an understanding about it. And he looked at me and he said, you've got some anger issues. If I were you, I'd get a sense of humor. If you don't have a sense of humor about who you are, what you've been, what you've done and where you're going, you're in for a rough ride because life gets really tricky. And for me, it was a ping went off in my head because I had learned meditation years before. I'd stopped using drugs to meditate for a year and um, until a guy put down an ounce of Peruvian flake on my counter and said, it's only for the work. And I thought, you know, I've been good. I have been really strong. I can pick it up or put it down, stop it anytime I want. What would a little needle line hurt? So I did one and then I did two because you have two nostrils and then I did two more to balance the hemispheres of my brain and then I did more to maintain the high octane uh, ride that I was now going on and solution oriented and very creative. You understand? <laughs> That's so wild. And so since you went there until now, how many times, if any, have you taken a step back? Never. Never. No. In fact, that day uh, that that counselor talked to me, I started meditating again, and I have meditated for almost 32 years. Uh, I meditate a lot now. I, in fact, I've learned deeper and deeper kinds of meditation over the years, and, um, and it's, I feel it's the only important thing I've ever discovered in my life. And then that, uh, that sobriety and being able to concentrate and being able to be, uh, to have the spirit control the mind has allowed me to explore lots of things in life and have a bunch of different experiences, some of which have been quite successful and some have been dismal failures and disappointments. And I've, there have been lots of reasons not to ever, I, I mean, to, to have a drink or to have a, a hit. Lots, maybe thousands. Take our audience through in all of the 30 years the experience or something that happened where you were the closest to saying, fuck it, I got to have a drink or I got to do this. What happened in the last 30 years that you were the closest? Well, my first 10 years of sobriety were, were like being on a rocket ship. I took control of my life. The commercials got really good and they were really funny and, and did really well. Um, on the, uh, I lost 50 pounds. I took up martial arts. I got in the best shape of my life. I changed as a human being. I changed the way I looked and the way I acted. And um, within the first year, I met Beverly. And she was um, at my studio. I had a guy running the, the music studio. And he met her at the bank. And she was a model. And said, you want to come over and hear the music we're doing? Said, oh, yeah. So I walk in the room. And, and I keep looking at her. It's this black girl. And she's really amazing looking and I try to be cool you know I'm trying like not to look over I'm trying to like catch glances and yeah so what are you listening to he glances he looks over yeah no kidding oh yeah that's a good one yeah player player though and she got really uncomfortable and left I said run who was that that's this model I met she's I work around the world and stuff and I met her at the bank went does she sing get her back so she comes back and we were doing this show that I was doing at the time called Shadow Vision. It was for HBO. And, and it was really a weird, wacky 
kind of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of show. And in it was a little jingle called Oh You Perspire. And the very first thing we ever did together was sing, Oh You Perspire, yeah, you perspire. Uh, oh, oh, oh. And she'd go, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> We did this about a hundred times because it was really funny and really intoxicating. It was very uh, um, stimulating. And we started to spend a lot of time together and um, basically haven't stopped. We, we uh, just totally enjoyed being with each other. And the miracle was that she was calm. I would, I would talk to her friends and say, What's, what do I have to watch out for? You know, no, after you get familiar, after you get comfortable, they go, no, no she's just like that. Now they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did she know? She told me that she saw um, a, a white halo around my head and it freaked her out. And, um, and she had to get out of the room. And she said, I felt like I was 14 years old and, and not a worldly woman. One of the first, this is a great story. The first um, things we ever did, we, were, we went to a restaurant um, on Sunset, one of our first dates. And um, I'm still in my first year of sobriety maybe like 10 months or so. And, uh, and she's telling me about being in Monte Carlo, going out with this uh, Saudi Arabian prince in his uh, Lamborghini. And she hated the way he was talking to her. And she said, let me out of this car. Get me out, pull over. And she pulls over the car and she gets out and walks and he's driving along, begging her to get back in the car. And I looked at her and said, I have nothing in common with this woman. I'm from Jamestown, North Dakota. And I started to go into a panic attack. I, I got like freaked out. I was jumping out of my skin. I was you know, almost hyperventilating. It's like, um, <clears throat> we got to get out of the restaurant. And I'm, and I'm kind of like jumpy. And, and um, we go out and get in the car and I'm driving down the street and I'm going, I, I don't know how to deal with this because I've never had to deal with this um, sober. And, um, and she said, well, let's go to my apartment. We go to her apartment and, and she shuts the door and she says, sit down on the floor. And I sit down on the floor, cross-legged. And she sits across from me. She says, okay, look at me. And I'm looking at her, but I'm looking away because I'm panicking. I'm panic. I am, I am terrified. I'm jumping out of my skin. I'm so anxious. I can't believe it. And she says, no, no, look at me do this. And she taps her, her knees. Uh, sailor went to sea. <laughs> to <laughs> sea. <laughs> and it was so stupid. And I went, <clears throat> and I couldn't remember. And she says, no, no, just keep going. Sailor. And pretty soon I'm laughing. And I laughed my way out of a panic attack and went, you're the one for me. I'm with you forever. <laughs> it's like, wow, so deep. Now, can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. Had you ever been with an African-American woman before? No. And so this is always fascinating to me when I talk to people, because it's so rare to talk about the first time of anything. You've had so many firsts in your career. But in your personal life here, you've gone out with a lot of women. Your first African-American girl. What's different about that experience? Not just for you mentally and intimately, but walking down the street 25, 30 years ago and going out to parties and what was it that you had to deal with? Both we went to a party once, and, and it was um, 
John, Johnny Mercedes, do you remember him? A uh, big um, manager. I think that was his name. Anyway, everybody had to put on name tags. And uh, so I put my name, Shadow Stevens, uh, you know, entertainment. And she writes, Beverly Cunningham, Countess. It's the <laughs> best thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I'm with the Countess. And it's so true. Every time I looked at her, I thought, I can't even believe that I'm with you. I can't believe how beautiful you are. I still feel that way, by the way. It's, it's really quite astonishing. And, um, and, so in, and, and that's the way it was. We never had a black-white issue ever, anywhere. And that's like, we had one time, maybe once in 30 years, walking down the street in New York, um, a homeless guy walked by and growled zebras. Okay, that's it. <laughs> so that's all you got? That's it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, no, you know, I go from, from Federated, Federated, um, that changes, and I, go, go, I get Hollywood Squares, and that becomes like the biggest show in the country for a, a period of time. And then I had a, a, a movie deal to do a movie for Dino De Laurentiis. It's a three-picture deal, and I was taking that real seriously. And, and then that went on for a number of years, and then it went to, uh, I did a, a series uh, on CBS called Max Monroe, Loose Cannon. And it was, they thought it was going to be this big, like, lethal weapon type show, and it was quite funny, and, and Fred Silverman produced it. But then Fred, Fred Silverman was an iconic yeah, the, network executive and also producer of one of the greatest shows he was involved with, I believe, in the very beginnings with Norman Lear was all in the family. He actually produced like Matlock and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and the number of hits he had was ridiculous, except that he had a heart attack in the middle of our production and wasn't available for any of the negotiating for any of like where to put it, how to promote it, all this stuff. So it didn't last long. But then came Dave's World. Now, and, and Dave's World was at the same time I'm doing American Top 40. I got American Top 40, took over for Casey Kasem. And it became the biggest radio show in the world. And it's still the biggest that ever was. It was on in 110 countries to a billion people a week. And they flew us around the world to promote it. So from Oslo to Tokyo and Singapore and Hong Kong. And I mean, everywhere we'd be greeted. And, and it was electric and, and really fun. Dave's World was a top 20 sitcom, and it was great fun. And then everything stopped. My uh, agent fired me. Who was your agent? Um, it was Don Buckwald. Were you working directly with Don? I was working with Don, and then I, then I was also working with a number of other people. For those of you who are under a rock, Don Buckwald is, Howard Stern calls him, super agent Don yeah, Buckwald. He couldn't do anything for me. Um, but Don started off mainly in the voiceover radio commercial world, and that was where his company began. And then he's a brilliant guy. As Howard branched out to many different forms of media, yeah. I would imagine that helped finance many different ventures and make them a theatrical company as well for acting. So Don fired you. Yeah, Why he asked he fire me to leave. You? He just said, I think it's time that you find another agent. And then no other agent would represent me. Why? You're making a lot of money. I don't know. It was my personal karma. Um, if you believe in karma, I have no, nothing else to blame it on because there was no reason for it. American Top 40 was the number one show in the world. Do you think it's because they felt they couldn't make money because that deal was already done? 
Well, yeah, that was part of it, but they couldn't parlay it into anything else. There were, there were no other, they, nobody had any other ideas of what to do with me. And, um, and I don't know if they were frustrated or what, but it wasn't working out. And at the same time, American Top 40 ended for no good reason. It was on in like four or 500 stations in America and all over the world. And the president of ABC Radio decided as a political move that what he would do is get out of the radio making business and go into the radio distribution business. So what he did is he decided to cancel American Top 40 and get out from under that overhead and then just distribute Rick D's and, and, and use Rick D's momentum to get out there. So, uh, and part of the deal was that they couldn't do a deal with me to do any other kind of, of radio show. So now the radio was gone, the television was gone, acting was gone, and um, advertising, nobody was interested in doing anything that I had to do, despite my success with uh, Federated and all the other things I'd done. I won Clio Awards. I, you know, it didn't matter. Didn't matter. Couldn't do anything. So then I'm looking at um, potential bankruptcy. And that went on for nine years. Uh, during that time, I create, that's where I, and if you looked at my, uh, any of my sites, I had a, a project called Rhythm Radio. It was the best idea I could think of. And that was based on flying all over the world for American Top 40, hearing all this great music in other languages. And I realized that, the, that the, the one thing all human beings have in common is rhythm. That I can enjoy some, something in Portuguese or Russian if it has rhythm. If it's a ballad, I don't know what they're th singing about. I can't relate to it. So we set out to find the greatest music in the world. It's called The Sound of the World in a Good Mood. And it was finding the greatest music on earth that lifted your spirits. And we did that and, and raised about a million dollars uh, to build it. Um, at its height, it was on the air in syndication in 30 countries and on the internet in seven languages. And then the dot-com crash happened. And they said the internet is a fluke. We are not going, to inter we're not going to invest in the internet and um, advertisers. So we had just sold to Nescafe for a, a worldwide deal, world, uh, a year deal. It was about a million-dollar deal. And they were uh, advertisers, all part of our advertising, sponsored the site. We had all these different Nescafe things. It was, a, it was a real sweet deal. But then they wouldn't renew either. So then that started to disintegrate. And it's during that, those times of complete freefall where, you, where your mind starts, finds a lot of reasons to complain. You know, normally in life, the default mechanism of the brain is to look for what's wrong and then make a list. And if you give any attention to this wrong, that wrong, then pretty soon it starts adding to the list of this went wrong, this went wrong, and this failure, and you suck. Basically, you're a fraud, and you're a fake, and you're faking it, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. And you know what? You really deserve a break. You deserve a break. You just take the weekend off. Just take the weekend off and uh, have some fun. You deserve a little fun. Wouldn't it be great if people out there in the audience, instead of that default mechanism, made the lists of everything that went great, all the times that they did things that were successful, all the wonderful moments and how they came about and how they created them. But there's a function in the brain called negativity bias. And negativity bias is the brain gives more weight to negative information than positive information. 
that's really odd, but true. And and then there is, um, um, you know, the amygdala, which is the storehouse of all your phobias and fears. And it's built to look out for saber-toothed tigers, you know, and, and to protect you from the elements. And when it doesn't have them, it looks for something else to be afraid of or concerned about or aware of or, you know, you've got to watch out for. And as soon as you allow that to take control, then pretty soon, you know, you're in terror. And when you're broken and when you're an addict or an alcoholic, your solution is always looming. There's a way out. Just have it. Just take the weekend off. So let's go way back, okay, the North Carolina thing. You painted the picture of your family, got that. But how do you know when you're seven years old in North Dakota that you want to be in the entertainment business? Who wants to be a DJ, let alone who wants to be a DJ in North Dakota at seven or 11 or whatever it is? Like, what happened? What was the moment that happened when you were a young kid? Were you watching television with your family? Was there something? Let our audience know what that might be. You no, know, you know, what it was, well, first of all, it was art. My mother taught me how to draw, and I did really well. And she made a big fuss about it. And I thought, well, I'm going to do more. And that's great. And so I thought I wanted to be an artist. But then my father had a tape recorder. And the tape recorder was music into it and make little stories. And I thought, this is like magic. And I, and I did it relentlessly. You have a lot of time in North Dakota, it's very cold. You know, you stay in the house in the winter and it's, it's gonna be 11 below there tonight, this week. So we're in the house trying stuff. And my uncle who owned a radio station, a couple radio stations, heard that I did this. And so he sent me a kit, a wireless broadcast kit. And the kit was a little thing that you had to solder together that would allow you to magically broadcast your voice into another room through the radio. And I put it together and thought, this is amazing. So I took it down to the local television store and said, how do I make this stronger? And then he told me about things I could do, and then I could put up a, a big antenna. So I crawled up to the third story at the top of my house, this is when I was 10, and I strung an antenna from the top of the third story to an evergreen tree in the backyard. So I had a hundred foot antenna with the ground. Now I could play records and tapes and do this, my own radio station. And you could hear it for a mile in every direction. It was amazing. We get in the car and we go, it's our station. We can hear this way out by the, by the reservoir. And, um, and then I, I was met by the man on the street who was a, a guy doing a show for one of the two local radio stations. And he talked to people and he said, hey, what's your, he said, what are you interested in? I went, oh, art and radio. Radio, really? And I said, I tell him about my radio station. And he goes, you should come down and talk to us. We should um, you know, do a show with you. So they, I did. And they put me on the air as the world's youngest disc jockey. I was 11 by then. And every Saturday morning, I played rock and roll um, on this show and talked about what was going on at the school. I'm sure it was terrible, but charming, cute, adorable. I had a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, I could pick the songs and put them in order and tell about them, and it was great. So I ended up doing that through high school. And then I also did art, and I bought a, an airbrush and did monster sweatshirts and T-shirts in a mall. So I was doing radio, and I would do that, and, and um, just trying a lot of things. First song you ever played in your first shift 
as eleven year old DJ? I have no idea, but, you remember but it might songs. well have been Little Richard because I loved Little Richard. Little Richard was the soundtrack of my life. Little Richard, um, it was all black music that I loved most. It was uh, Little Richard, See, Chuck it all Berry. Comes full uh, yeah, circle. I'm telling you, yeah, yeah, all all of the uh, doo wop stuff and and. Uh, if that's Domino, it's great stuff. So you're doing the T-shirts, you're doing the radio, you're 11, you're in school. What happens next? I decided I need to make more money. You're so, 11. Well, no, I, after 11. After 11, I did this and, 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 and people there, listened. Wasn't and, there something I read somewhere that, was it Time Magazine? That that's, you know, I'm not sure that that's an urban rumor. rumor oh, it's a rumor. I've, I've heard that. I've never seen it. People have told me that, that they saw it in time, uh, in Life magazine, that that they had picked up the story because they had my name in the paper as the world's youngest disc jockey. I had still have the picture, and it's like yeah, every Saturday morning, spin with Terry. <laughs> there I was, and uh, and your real name is Ingsted. Terry it's a Norwegian Ingsted. name. Yeah, um, I I take some jobs that will make me a lot more money so that I can buy a car. I loved cars from the very beginning. I had I had. And I went from go-karts to motor scooters to having my first car at 14. I wanted to have a good car. So the first thing I did, this is a great story. I worked. All your stories are great stories. I'm telling you, it, it's like, like a comic book. I'm waiting book. for you to say, hey, there, this is a shitty story. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'll love this. But first of all, I worked on a, on, a, on a street crew, you know, putting in asphalt and filling in, you know, potholes. And that didn't work. So we got a job um, working for Venusians um, in Spiritwood, North Dakota. Venusians? Venusians, oh, people sorry. from Venus. And I'm telling you now, this is the absolute truth. Uh, th this is a little family of people who looked like the aliens that you see in the stories. They had little narrow jaws and mushroom heads. They're... Above their ears, their skulls actually went out like a mushroom. And they were sweet, kind little people, and they had this farm. And, and my, all my, my friends uh, went out, and we would haul bales. It's a terrible job. You put hooks on, on either side of uh, hay bales, and you lift them into a truck all day long, from 5 in the morning until 8 at night. And, they, um, and, and, and then we'd go back to their house and have these Thanksgiving-style meals every day. It was pork roast and ham and pies and chicken and everything you can imagine. And we were all like kind of funny guys and we'd tell stories and, and there'd be like, um, you know, you'd say the punchline, of course you don't have teeth down there. Look at the condition of your gums. And everybody would laugh. And, and then the, the little Venusian guy would go, look at the condition of your gums. <laughs> and then he would say that again ever a few minutes later. The condition of your gums. Uh, <laughs> and this became a story of our life. So now I, I got this, this went on and, uh, years later, like a year ago, I tracked down one of the guys I worked with, that I grew up with. And I said, I, oh, I knew they're from, from, they were aliens. They even had an alien name, but I cannot, and I couldn't find anybody in town who knew them. I, I asked people in Jamestown, you know, do you remember the people who were like, aliens that lived out by Spiritwood, and they go, no, no. So I say to my friend, Ray Bookley, he goes, Ray, do you remember? And he goes, oh, you mean Virgie Shock? Virgie Shock? That's a perfect alien name. It sounds like it was written by Ray Bradbury. 
So, so there was the Virgie shock and the alien story. Then I went to work on the railroad. railroad. I worked on a railroad section crew. And we lived in a boxcar in Zap and Gackle, North Dakota. If I had only found a pop, I would, I would have had <laughs> Zap, Gackle, and pop. And that was the joke. But we literally lived in a boxcar. Now, this is the salt of the earth, I'm telling you. This is hardcore work. This is like being in a coal mine. You get up I at five. I always thought the salt of the earth meant you were a nice guy. No, but the people you're working with, no, the people you're working with are hardy. Well, let's put it this way. You get done working on the rails from five in the morning until eight at night, and you go back to your boxcar, which isn't one that has air conditioning, let's say, but you're with a bunch of sweating, stinking, farting, drinking, smoking, salt of the earth guys who were there doing their job and were really good at it. And we're a bunch of young kids going, damn, I'm living in a boxcar in Gackle. And then zap. And then I couldn't take it anymore at zap. So I went and rented a motel room in the nearby town in, in zap. <laughs> it's zap. It's a real town. And, um, and then I came to the meaning of life. And that was that if for the rest of my life, if I was doing something that I really liked, if I never slept again, it would never be work because this is work and this is unacceptable. So at the end of the summer, I quit and had enough money to buy a great car and um, was ready to run off to college. I wanted to come to California, but I was too ashamed. I came out here. I was accepted at Art Center School here in Los what Angeles. What were you ashamed of? of? That everybody in California was cool. They all knew that I wasn't cool. It's like, it's a heck from North Dakota. They all know that. That's what my brain told me. I, I went inside and went, um, I can't uh, do this. So I'll just go to the University of North Dakota where my friends are going. And, uh, and I did that for three years. I was an uh, art major. So how did you get to the point where you got your first big break? Well, I work full-time in radio um, to help put myself through school. And in my third year, I got a job in Fargo which was 80 miles south of Grand Forks. And I would drive there every day to work. I'd work from seven at night until one in the morning and then drive back and then go to school during the day. And then the um, program director there got, or the manager there got me a job in Tucson. And I went to Tucson and it was stepping into the big time. For me, it was fabulous, loved Tucson. It was warm, it was big time. And it was a step, real step up. And I was there for two years, and then the big break was going to Boston. I uh, had been applying for jobs in California, but um, they gave me a job in Boston. I didn't want to go to Boston. It was cold. I didn't want to go there. Eastern, cold. Did not want to be there. But it was good for me, and it was a great city after I got yeah. over myself. <laughs> and so... Things are going well, not really nationally, locally, they're going well. When do you make the decision to go from Terry to Shadow That was Stevens? given to me against my will. That was given to me by God. God gave it to you God against your it. will. And the story you of that... You realize that's the first thing you've said during this whole interview, that I feel like I'm back in the bathroom with the two guns. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's true. And... And, it, and, and you, you'll see the symbolism of it. 
Um, I am God. You are now shadow with an E. Thou be as shadow with an E. <laughs> Go ye out among men. Um, I was on my way to Boston, and I pulled over to call the station and tell them I'm on my way. I'd been known as Jefferson K. I'd given myself this name back in North Dakota. And it was kind of like a, an R&B kind of name. I did an all R&B show for a while in North Dakota called the Jefferson K R&B Showcase. And then I went to Tucson and I did Jefferson K. And so I'm, I, I pull over and I'm at a phone booth in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And across the way is this endless um, um, fence that said atomic testing range, do not enter. Get in the phone booth and I call Boston. And I say to him, I'm on my way. And he goes, great, great. We're really looking forward to it. It's going to be really good. One thing, though, um, Drake wants to change your name. Uh, Drake was the god of radio. He created Boss Radio in Los Angeles, uh, which went all over the country. It was the biggest, he was the biggest um, force in radio at that time. And his word was God. He said, and they said, well, there's a, there's a J.J. Jeffries on the station. There's a Jess Kane. And believe it or not, a couple of years ago, there was a guy named Jefferson K. On, in Boston Radio. So we got to change your name. We're thinking of calling you a Shadow Man or Shadow Lane. I was horrified. It was like, that's the dumbest name I've ever heard in my life. I said, well, don't, you know, be too hasty. Um, by the time I get there, I'll have a bunch of different uh, options that we can talk about. So I drove helter-skelter across country, look, you know, in my Corvette, looking at the road signs, going Rodney Rhodes, you know, Jerry Lane, one short uh, Dirk billboard, you know, just really terrible names. And I, two days later, I arrive in Boston. I'm driving into Boston, and I hear on WRKO, Coming Monday, Monday night, Shadow Stevens. And it goes, Shadow Stevens, the jingle, 68 WRKO. I'm going, no, no, <laughs> that's just awful. And they were all excited. They were excited. They were going, oh, no, this is great. It's a great name. You're going to love this name. And I was so embarrassed by it that I had to create a backstory. The backstory was it was a name given to me by God against my will, which is true. Second is that they would say, um, well, so is that your real name? I go, it's God's baffling sense of humor. <laughs> and they go, yeah. I say, you know, it's Native American. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, what, what tribe? I think Sioux because I'm from North Dakota. And they go, oh. I go, yeah, it means he who walks with the light. No kidding. Yep. So that ends the conversation. I feel good about myself. <laughs> I can move on. And then the name created me. You know, it's like I became what that was. And your first national break where the whole country got to discover you instead of just one market. Um, well, the first was I was um, Steve Allen's sidekick on, on the Steve Allen, one of the Steve Allen syndicated shows. Radio show. Television. Television. Show. Yeah. I was, I was the Ed McMahon. And it was just like, broad, remember in broadcast news where, where he sweats and the sweat rolls down? Mm -hmm. That was me. <laughs> I sweat. I was so out of my league. I was so in awe of Steve Allen. He could do everything. He played every instrument. He wrote. He was funny. He, was, he could do improv. He was amazing. 
He would sit there and during the commercials, he would like write, he would write constantly. He wouldn't even look up. He would just be writing. And I go, what are you writing? And he goes, I'm always afraid I'm going to forget something. So I write everything down. Went, good enough for Steve, good enough for me. And I've done that ever since. It's like, that is a good habit because I don't trust my brain. That's yeah. awesome. I'm going to ask you a question I've never asked anybody before. Okay. You live to be 110 years old. You do your will. For some reason, you say to yourself, you know, at my funeral, I'd like these songs to be playing to celebrate my life. What are the songs? It would all be New Orleans street music. This celebration music that you know, we, I was uh, um, made one of the uh, kings of one of the parades for Mardi Gras one year. And it was everything I love about music. We were met at the, at the plane by these people, this band. And as I stepped off the plane, they handed me an umbrella. Now it's dance with that umbrella down, down the aisles, down to the car. We had police escort and the freeways split as they, as they went through it. And they played this music in the car and they played that music in the streets. And I went, this is the music of my life. It is so uplifting. There's nothing melancholy. I don't want melancholy. Don't like melancholy. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to, you know, feel the, the, the melancholy or the, or the despair that, that people find for some reason enjoyable. I'm always looking to be up and more up, enthused and inspired all the time. Still like that. Got it. And the artists that you grew up with, so many of them could be considered extraordinary or geniuses. Is there anybody in the last decade, in your expert opinion, your mind, that you would say, they're a genius? That music is extraordinary. There's nothing like it. There's this person and there's everybody else. Ooh, damn. Should have done some thinking about this. No, there are people that I that I really like, and a lot of them are mainstream, like Justin Timberlake and Beyonce, and and um, I tend to really like blues, and uh, I love '30s music. Um, the Boswell Sisters. Have you ever heard the Boswell Sisters? No. Oh my God! Look them up. They, they were from New Orleans, and they had these, these wonderful harmonies. It's three, three sisters, and it's some of my favorite music of all time. It's just, you know, desperate times in the 1930s. People really needed music to, to make them, you know, feel optimistic. And so they were turning out all this music that was remarkable. The Boswell sisters are as good as it gets. What's fascinating is I'm sitting across from a guy who, for many, many years of his career, introduced pop music he never introduced the boswell sisters <laughs> that's true he never introduced new Orleans. Well, you know the whole the whole approach of starting k-rock was all new music all the time so i was one of the first people in america to play david bowie and queen and super tramp and and then the, and the list kind of goes on and on Iggy pop and, and and a lot of people and David Boyk, uh, I was on the air on KMET at one time, and, um, and we were doing a, uh, Shakespeare's birthday, and we were doing mock Shakespearean, you know, we and thou, and, and making this stuff. I mean, and, and my friend, uh, Brother John, who was running the news department, he and I were really in sync, and it was really funny. 
And all of a sudden, there was a knock on the door. And I opened the door in this little studio, and there's David Bowie. And he's standing there with a friend named Jeff. And he said, I just had to come and see where all this madness was coming from. Come on in. He brings me a gift, which I still have. And it was a little book. And it was a felt cover that he'd made himself that he put over it. And it said, The Complete Works of Shakespeare to Shadow from Bowie. And I opened it up and it was the works of Chairman Mao. I went, this is the greatest <laughs> joke ever. I love this. So he sat and hung out for a while and, and it was like one of those great memories. And then I later got a gold record, which I still have uh, signed from him. Um, you, know, and, you know, how they do. Thanks for helping us, you know, with sales and excess of a million and all these classic albums. And he was always, you know, one of my favorites. There were like things that happened that, like that along the way. You met... Every star in the music business throughout your career, I mean, everyone you've met. Can you just tell us somebody who you met along the way that for some reason, the impact that they had on you, not only in their music, but when you met them, it just merged together into that moment where you were like, wow, this is really special. You know, one of my... One of my favorite artists of all time is Jeff Lynn, our Electric Light Orchestra. And I have loved everything that he ever did. I, so much so that I have a project that's over 30 years old that I've been working on that includes, um, it's this whole film um, scored to the Electric Light Orchestra. My son and I have both worked on it now for years. And we're in discussions with him trying to get it to the next level right now but he came to my house um maybe 10 years ago and saw an earlier incarnation of this demo that i created and he's kind of shy and kind of quiet and hard to talk to but so brilliant that you kind it's kind of like meeting uh steve martin steve martin and i were on a jury duty together and i went up to him and, and introduced myself i said you know you've done so much and you're so good at everything it's really intimidating to talk to you. I go, oh, well, thank you. Okay. okay. Where do I go? Steve Martin, for those of you who don't know or have never met him, one of the most reserved and dry and serious people you'll ever talk to in your yeah. life. You can't even believe. Can't believe how smart he is and how good he is at everything. You know, it's like, oh, I think I'll take it. And, and the judge asked him in court, you know, he described himself as a musician now. And, he got, and, and, one, and one of the lawyers said, well, have you had any success in this? He was like kind of like condescending. And he goes, well, I've won three Grammys, I guess. I've done okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, he does that too, and he does it really well. <laughs> All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names of some people. You can... Say one word, you can tell a great story, you can tell a sentence, do whatever you want. Okay. Casey Kasem. Casey um, was a really nice man. He was very influential in my early life when I, um, when I was transitioning from being a top 40 disc jockey into being uh, an FM disc jockey. And, and he gave me this advice telling me that you know, with modern technology, microphones can pick up everything and you don't need to project like you do. And you can get up next to the microphone and get really quiet and let everything just float. 
And I got, oh, these levels of, of delivery had never occurred to me. And, and the speed of words and, and how you use pause and things. And I never forgot that. Um, and then uh, after I took over American Top 40, we became friends. Um, and his daughter uh, with Jean became uh, friends with my children. And so we were invited to their houses all the time. And he and she kind of like ran the show. And at the age of two, Little Liberty had a party in which they drained the swimming pool and filled it with salt water so they could have a dolphin in it. A little excessive. <laughs> I loved Casey. He was a, a genuinely nice human being. Henry Winkler. Love Henry Winkler. He's, uh, he's one of those guys that every time I see him, he looks you in the eye and he said, how are you doing? It's really good to see you. Get a big hug. And uh, when I asked him to do to review my children's book, The Big Galoot, he said I would be honored to, and he did it, and he wrote it, and it wasn't a big deal. It was he's he's not only really talented, but really kind, and uh, and I've seen him many many times over the years, and um, uh, always really liked him. Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler. I've never met Steven Tyler, but. That surprises me. I, I know, I know. I missed that one. And he's one of my favorites. He can really sing. I love seeing him on everything. I, I, I liked seeing him, uh, was it American Idol he did, right? And, and he was interesting and colorful, and, and he hasn't lost anything. He hasn't lost any range. He's, he's a, a remarkable artist. Really like him a lot. Sir Elton John. Sir Elton John, yes. <laughs> I only um, um, met him for a short, short time, never really got to know him or anything, did a little interview of him back in the American Top 40 uh, era. So I can't really comment, uh, although he was another one of the artists that we, um, that we started playing really early because the whole, and that was that thing. When I did American Top 40, it was not who I was. It took me 18 hours to do the first four-hour show. I could not do what Casey Kasem did. It had no humor. It had no wit. It had no, no tongue-in-cheek. Everything I'd ever done had a, an attitude. K-Rock, KMET, all these federated. Everything Were the owners of done. the show willing to allow you to bring humor to it in the beginning? Reluctantly. You know, I, I always wanted to say, your friend in the void, the shadow. And you go, well, the void? That's kind of <laughs> creepy. And so what is the void? So I had, to, I had to change it to your best friend. <laughs> and then Casey always said, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. So I would say, um, remember, the world is your oyster. And if you can't find your pearl, you can always have lunch. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons lived a couple doors down from me, and, and we became quite friendly. Um, uh, he lived, I think he still lives in Benedict Canyon when I lived there. Uh, and again, the kids got to know each other. And so we uh, would go see him. I, I like Gene a lot. He's, he is probably one of the great marketing geniuses of all time. And when I, when I met him, he was doing everything himself in his garage. You know, all the Kiss stuff, everything. He would hand do them. He would, he would package them. He would put them in the mail. And then, you know, a few years went by and the next thing I know, he's building, you know, a hotel on his lot. You know, it was like crazy success. I had a meeting with him at his house and he had a whole room dedicated to all the merchandise, 1,300 pieces. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Incredible. Craig Ferguson. 
I have a great relationship with Craig. I think he's one of the smartest people working on television. Um, the, the, he, he, in, on the Late Late Show, he did a lot of like wacky kind of Pee Wee Herman ideas, you know, the, the robot and the, um, and the, and the puppets and, and all that stuff. But the guy, he's one of those guys that when we sit one-on-one -on -one and talk, he'll say things. He has, he has the gift of spontaneous eloquence. He'll say things that sound like he sat and wrote them earlier, and you go, I should write that down. I can't write. I can't. I have to think that kind of stuff out. I have to kind of make that work and then memorize it so that I can say it and impress people later on. <laughs> he just, you know, he's well-read. He's, he's, his new show is called Join or Die, and it starts next week. It's a very good show. I wish I'd thought of it. It's a show about um, it's him and maybe a, a, a small panel including an expert in history and, um, and people from the entertainment business that are eloquent and funny. And they will take on a subject, and it'll be like, who is the craziest cult leader of all time? That's what we're going to investigate today. Was it uh, the Moonies? Was it Jim Jones? And they'll tell a little bit about each of these crazy people throughout history and talk about it, joke about it. And by the first commercial, throw two out as not being crazy enough. And then for the next section, they'll talk about those four, and they'll narrow it down to two before finally awarding one as the craziest cult leader or the weirdest medical advice that's ever been given. It's always an angle of something that happened in history or something that exists in the world that makes an interesting topic to talk about. It's a very smart show. And I wish Craig Ferguson good luck this coming week as he is nominated for a Grammy Award for Best right. Comedy Album along with Lisa Lampanelli, yeah. Wyatt Cenac, Louis C.K., and one that I worked on with Jay Moore that his wife Nikki Cox wrote. Oh, I heard him talking about that. Yeah, yeah it sounds like it's terrific. Yeah, so it should be interesting. Yeah. Whoopi Goldberg. Had a great relationship with Whoopi, too, from um, Comic Relief. I met her on Comic Relief. I did all the Comic Relief shows um, throughout that whole series with Billy Crystal and um, Robin Williams. And she was always personable and kind and uh, funny as could be. And uh, she's another one who wrote a, a nice quote for me for that children's book. And, um, yeah, I... I uh, I have nothing but good memories about her. I haven't seen her for years, but she's one of the good ones. Tell me about Dick Clark. I had a great relationship with Dick, too. Um, he's one of those guys that always took my calls, always uh, welcomed me in, would make time for a meeting for any kind of idea or project that I ever had. That beautiful office on Olive with the Ivy. Before that, he had an office across from me on Sunset, and, he, and, and I had left radio in the uh, after k-rock in the late 70s and gone into uh, television and doing the commercials and he called me one day and he said i was in new york and i heard you on the air uh, shadow stevens on uh, but it didn't sound like you it didn't sound anything like you and uh i know it wasn't you so somebody's stolen your name and you should get your lawyer to, to look into it so i well, went thank you and so i did and found out that there was a guy who had taken my name on Z100. And so we gave him a cease and desist. And what he did is he added a middle initial and got away with it. 
and, and kept it. And then later on, he moved to Los Angeles for a short period of time to do pirate radio. And he changed his name to Shadow Steel, which I thought was appropriate. And, <laughs> um, and then that lasted a short time. And I think he left radio after that. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think he went into record promotion or something. Coming full circle from my cold open, Robin Williams. Uh, well, yeah, again, I mean, all these guys at the top, Billy Crystal is another one, uh, uh, and Robin Williams. Every time I ever saw them, they were personable, look you in the eye, shake your hand, ask how you're doing, how's the family, and, and it wasn't there's kind of distance or I don't have time for you or don't bother me now, kid, which as a guy from Jamestown, North Dakota, you kind of expect always. It's like, oh, they forgot, they don't know. I, uh, do I even dare say hi? Oh, I'll make myself. Uh, and he was one of those guys. Um, it just like monstrously creative and uh, going 100 miles an hour. And uh, it was quite shocked, you know, when he uh, left us. But um, yeah, one of the good guys, another one of the good guys. And Billy Crystal put me in one of his, in one of his movies. I had this little part, and it was quite funny. And the movie didn't come off as well as it as it should have, but... Which uh, movie was that? No. Mr. Saturday Night? Mr. Saturday Night. One of my favorite movies. Yeah, it, it was a really good movie, but, but the makeup and the lighting made you aware that it was makeup and lighting all the time, that it was always makeup, and you couldn't lose yourself in the character because his performances were terrific. And it's a very smart, clever film, but just that one little mistake took you out of the film, and I made it, it made a lot of people uh, uncomfortable, I think, and... And it didn't get good reviews. It's a shame because it's so funny. A great movie. I strongly suggest everybody. Tell our audience one interview or one exchange with some musical artist that just, it went bad. I never had a bad experience with an interview. Um, I, I had a, um, there was a, there's a funny story about, um, I produced this show called The Flo and Eddie Show, and I love these guys, uh, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, the Turtles. And they are not only amazing musicians and wonderful singers, but they are really funny. And they came to me when I started K-Rock, and they said, we want to do a show. And so we talked about the kind of show. So I produced their show. It was called Flo and Eddie by the Fireside. And every Sunday night, it would be a giant party and everybody was drinking and smoking and laughing and no song would ever play longer than 30 seconds. So I was producing all this song and the music would play and it would go from this to this to this to this. And all these people would come in as guests and um, Ringo came in and Susie Quattro and Albert Brooks and, and, um, and Keith Moon came in, and he was so messed up. I mean, we were all a mess. This guy was in a class all by himself. And we had these high director's chairs, you know, sit up real high, and you put your feet on the little ledge. And he's sitting there, and he's rocking and talking. And all of a sudden, there's a room packed with people. There were people all over the room. There had to be 30 or 40 people in this party atmosphere with all these different microphones and everybody talking at once. And it was funny, and it was interesting. And he's talking, and all of a sudden, he fell over backwards in the chair, boom, down onto the floor, and the whole room went silent, and everybody tried not to laugh. It was very uncomfortable, and quickly, the bodyguards jumped over, lifted him up, put him back in shape, adjusted him, 
And everyone back to the show. <laughs> and, and we laughed so hard about this later. We have pictures of him in the studio, and his, he was out of his mind. He was such a neat guy, funny guy, but out of his mind. He was so, so out of control even then. And, um, and that was one of the more awkward moments that I've ever had with a major celebrity. Name one rock star that's alive today that you can't believe they're still alive based on what they did. Are you kidding? Keith Richards. <laughs> Give me a break. How is he alive? <laughs> Good God. You look at him, you go, it's the Crypt Keeper. It's, <laughs> and, and he's so... That's what I say when I look in the mirror. Yeah, I know, but don't we all? It's like, oh, God, who is that? I'm 97 years old. And, and uh, you know, it's the rain looking for what's wrong. Uh, but Keith Richards keeps going, and he's still smoking. And how, how is that possible? Heroin, any kind of drug, excess, all of that... Um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll all over the world for decades. And he's still going. Good God. Your proudest moment in show business. I've had some peak moments that were, that were quite remarkable. Um, but each, each time that you have a moment of, of uh, surprising success, uh, it, it has its own kind of richness, you know, that, that make it really special. I think the the most creatively fulfilling work I ever did was Federated. I think working with those guys, one of whom is Mike, Michael Hill, is the head of production at HBO for the last twenty years, and and uh, and Dave Nichols is um, a, a editor and publisher of uh, a whole bunch of magazines. And these guys were really smart. Chuck Serino, writer, director, musician. These were guys that were like Monty Python, and we would just think of funny stuff. We never had a fight, never had an argument. It was like, what can we do that's funny? What can we do? Let's, let's get it done. Try this, try that. Um, but then there, are, uh, there was Dave's World, which was, uh, you know, it was successful. There was Hollywood Squares. We, we did Hollywood Squares from this little um, stage uh, over at Channel 5 the first year. And it was really small with a very small audience. And, you know, we knew that the show was popular, but we had no idea how popular it was until we went to New York and Radio City Music Hall. And it sold out five shows in two hours. And people stood in line for hours for this. Who was in the middle square? Uh, Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers and Jim J. Bullock was a regular and me and in the bottom looking up at Joan, and, uh, and then a variety of, uh, you know, celebrities. And it was as much fun as I've ever had because it was the, hard, the hardest thing is that you find out what the questions are going to be. And then you think of funny ways to answer A it. lot of our audience doesn't know this, but on Hollywood Squares, I was told that you got the questions and you got three jokes that you could say with that question. You could choose a joke. Is that true or you only got one joke? No, you were given, um, you would do five shows in a day. Mm -hmm. So when you arrive in the morning uh, and you go to your dressing room, they give you um, all of the questions, not the answers. They couldn't give you the answers, but they would give you uh, questions and sample um, jokes or things that you could say in reference to that question that would be funny. Or you could write your own 
Or in my case, I worked with Rick Rosner, who produced the show with me, and uh, came up with the idea of bluffing. So my whole thing was, um, and there there's some funny stories about what happened. There was one, there was one great one. We were doing shows from the Caribbean, and um, we were on an island there doing uh, a show, and and John Davidson held up a this little animal, and he said, um, "Shadow, what kind of animal is this?" And I said, "I'm glad you asked me that." <laughs> Because I happen to know that on the Bahamian currency, it actually lives on salt water and is widely revered in the islands. It's called a slamagoy. And the girl said, I agree. And then she went, no, wait a minute. No, wait, wait, wait a minute. I disagree. That's a raccoon, <laughs> which it was. <laughs> a little baby raccoon of slamagoy. So that was all. And I did that all the time. And then people started going, he's going to bluff. So then the trick was to, if I knew the answer, I would give an elaborate story about the true answer. And then they'd have to really pay attention, which uh, was unsettling to some people. But it was, it was great fun. It was great fun. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used the bone-crushing defeat to rise to another level. Well, you know, it came almost simultaneously um, because of the the uh, great success I was having with American Top Forty and with Dave's World at the same time. It's it it seemed like if you do well and you work hard and show up and do a good job and it's successful, that other things will open up for you. In my case, that isn't true. And when they both ended within a year of each other, and I was facing the abyss. I simply didn't know what to do, and I had to get creative, and that was where Rhythm Radio was born, and that carried me through the next like seven years, and then when that went down, that was devastating too. But the thing is that I learned is that because I never gave up, I learned tools that I never would have had had I not been challenged that way. I learned how to do Final Cut. I learned how to do Photoshop. I learned how to do um, you know, final draft. I learned how to write. I learned how to do everything and count on myself. And I was able to build my own studio, which I have today. I can do anything that I can think of. I learned how to do websites, learned how to do all this stuff. And so that allowed me to create new things. And those came in the aftermath of Rhythm Radio. Fantastic. What advice do you have for the young artist or the young person in this entertainment business, or any business for that matter, who's probably living in a place where they can't see a mountain? They're in a place where there's no real means of anything. They're in a state of mind where they're sort of don't know what's going to happen, or they're battling through some kind of addiction. What advice do you have for? that person to get to the next level and to fight through and have the kind of career that you've had? Well, there are actually two different questions. If, if um, drinking and drugs have stopped working for you and it's pretty apparent, you need to get help. You simply can't do it by yourself. And the, and the best help you can get is free. These 12-step programs are miraculous. And if you just go in and find friends and be around people who have decided they're going to change their life, 
and they're going to uh, do better and and see if what will happen for them, what what have has happened for other people, um, you'll get a a level of um, a foundation in your life that will allow you to blossom into the person, a person that you never dreamed you could be. Um, we're, we're our own worst enemies, you know, that it's that, you know, looking for what's wrong and making a list. It, it just is, uh, it's one of the problems of being alive these days. As far as creativity, we've never had a time that people had more access to creative tools. You can, you can create podcasts and you can create radio shows and you can create television, you can create videos, you can shoot them on your, on your cell phone and you can share them. You can, there are places, there are distribution platforms you can share them and you can share them for free. How good are you? You know, how original can you be? And, and, and genius is in the details. You got to go like, I'm going to do something that's 30 seconds long. What goes into it? What are the words? How do I shoot it? What are the details? How does it sound? You know, if it's in an, if, if it's in an open room and sounds hollow, you'll sound amateur. Make it work. Find out what you have to do to make it sound better. How does it look better? You, know, you have to know all of these things or think about all these things to be able to make great art. I can't believe I'm speechless. <laughs> I would like people to, you know, my, I have this website, shadowart.com, that I, I really care about that is kind of the embodiment of how I think. And I did all of these big pieces that are the three by five foot canvases that are, it's called the transdimensional symbolism of Rocky Waters. Rocky Waters is a metaphor for difficult times. And, and in it, on the first piece, it says, just when he thought he was winning the game, fate took a turn down a blind alley. And suddenly he was forced to confront fear, doubt, and change. And then in each piece, it gets into a different perspective of his descent into feeling small and overwhelmed by life until he surrenders and rises like the phoenix and blossoms into, there's one called um, uh, the consequences of optimism. And it's like, you choose. You can choose to look at the world as living in possibilities, or you can choose the black hole. Choose. It's up to you. Shadow Stevens, I didn't know what to expect. I feel odd inside because you sit across from somebody you don't know, you just hear them. And my perception was that you're really just a mainstream man who's been in the mainstream media. And when you think of that, you don't necessarily know. And then when I saw the video, and then when I talked to you in person, you just have so much depth and you have so much to offer. And the audience is really, really going to love what you had to say today. I am so grateful. Thank you they so should much. Watch, and they should watch my daughter's show, by the way. Okay. Amber's in this show called The Carmichael Show that comes on in August, or in March. And it's the funniest show on Gerard television. Carmichael. Gerard show. Carmichael yeah. is brilliant. And every show is about something. They did one on Bill Cosby that is maybe perfect. It's the, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And it touches your heart, makes you feel... Like, because he addresses the thing about what an icon he was, what he meant to us growing up, you know, that he was this person that he wasn't. And what, and how did we deal with that? And just when you get most emotional about it, bam, they hit you with a joke and you go, this is, this writing is unbelievable. The cast is unbelievable. So that's great. Joe, great comedian. And he just reminded me of the 
Chris Rock, what he said in an interview, he said the last year was a tough year for comedians. Tough year. We lost Robin Williams, Joan Rivers, and Bill Cosby, sort of. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so true. All right. Thanks a lot, yeah, man. I you. really appreciate thank it. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Awesome. Great. Thank oh, you. Well, that means a lot coming from you, man. That's like, kill me. It's, I've never been on a podcast this enjoyable, this much fun, this interesting, and I really appreciate you having me. You're really, you're something else. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary. And you can get it at the website IKilledJFK.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, will Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Renee Marino from Bellflower, California. Congratulations, Renee. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right. This is by Soul Writer, August 1st, 2013. BK Strikes Again, five stars. He or she writes informative, inspirational, and motivational. Barry's a showbiz OG who asked all the right questions. Subscribe now. Well, thank you, Soul Writer. Congratulations. And as always, this is Industry Standard. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... 
Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.